You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Professor Jacques Berlinerblau. Uh, Jacques, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Jacques Berlinerblau, a professor at Georgetown University. Happy to be here. Uh, thanks for coming on. So our topic today is going to be uh, Philip Roth, and mostly a piece that you wrote uh, uh, that was published in Salon, and is an excerpt from an upcoming uh, book that you have coming out later in the year. So um, you'll be happy to know that, that your piece reached the level at which um, my mom uh, texted it to me uh, to make sure that I read it. So you've permeated that <laughs> the culture deep enough for that to happen uh, for Jewish mothers to be sending their pieces to their, their Jewish sons. Um, and, and so the piece, which will be linked below, Philip Roth, Philip Roth and Race, a Legendary Novelist's Troubling Pattern, and is an excerpt from your book, The Philip Roth, We Don't Know, Sex, Race, and Autobiography, which is coming out in September. Is that right? That's right. September 14th. Uh, so you can probably pre-order that on Amazon or other such places, uh, if one wanted to do that. And, uh, yeah, and so, um... Just as a little background, so I've talked about Roth a couple times before on this podcast. He's probably my favorite author, um, maybe after Shakespeare, and I have some, I mean, part of that, the original reason why I got into him was I have some, you know, abstract biographical uh, similarities to him being a um, nice Jewish boy uh, from Essex County, New Jersey, um, who liked making jokes, and uh, so I got really into Roth during college and after college and read the entire oeuvre in the years after college, but I also um, have not read a reread anything. I mean, I would read the novel, the post 2005 novels and, and so forth as they came out, but um, I haven't reread anything. And so my memory is a little shoddy and you, you've have a much more, um, you know, uh, you've been in, within the canon much more than I have. Okay. So, um, so let's, let's talk about the piece. Um, why, why, and I guess in the book as a whole, so why is, why is this the project that you uh, want to pursue to write about Roth? All right. Well, first of all, again, thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk about literature, which is a hard thing to do these days. There are not that many fora for that. And that was something Roth was really worried about. Uh, he wrote about this for 25 years, that people weren't going to read serious fiction uh, into the 21st century. So this project let me start off this way. I'm thinking of slogans from my book, and here's one you might like. This is not your grandfather's Philip Roth book. <laughs> um, your mother, who's not your grandfather, apparently liked the piece, so uh, all honor to your mom. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about the younger generation. Uh, I've probably taught more college Roth than anyone in the country. I know that sounds odd, but I started teaching Roth in 1994, 1995 at Brooklyn College, and I have this unusual superpower that lets me teach Roth. That's kind of complicated, but I've been doing it every year for about 25, oh my God, 27 years. It's a long time. What am I seeing, Arye? I'm seeing readership changing. That's where this begins. I'm seeing the younger generation not kind of digging the Roth the way they used to, and instead of doing that old man thing where, ah, oh, kids these days, the cancel culture, the youth, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I would say, what, what's on their minds? What are they concerned about? And how can I reconfigure Roth 
to make him more interesting and compelling to these readers because he has so much to offer. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Um, so I was I was also introdu- introduced to Roth in college. Uh, a course I took was um, a Roth, yeah, I think it was called Mid Century Moderns Roth and Updike. So we read you know six or seven of both of those, and they, and you know they have often been paired together uh, throughout their careers, and maybe somewhat now that they're both posthumous figures. Um, and but the Roth was what, what I connected with much more. Um, but that's interesting that you may. Uh, that you are you have you have seen students reacting to Roth, I guess, across you know three generations, at least as defined by the you know pop culture of like Gen X to Millennial to now maybe Gen Z um, or whatever we're calling them. Um, so what? Okay, so in some ways, like Roth, you know, uh, is someone who would say, "Well, uh, Roth is easy to cancel. Uh, he was a misogynist." Would probably be strike number one. And if he, whether or not he, I mean, okay, we can talk about, we're going to be talking at least a little bit about this biography that's coming out in, I think, just a month by Blake Bailey, which is the official authorized biography. Roth picked him to do it, and it's like 900 or 1,000 pages. Uh, neither of us have read it yet, but reviews are starting to come out about that. And I think that's why, and it's, I guess, expected to be one of the big serious nonfiction works of the year. So that's why maybe people are starting to talk about Roth again you know, for the first time since his death uh, three years ago. Um, so treating women badly, maybe in his personal life, but also the, the treatment of female characters would be an obvious one. And then this piece uh, that you wrote uh, about his race and Roth and primarily his treatment of black or African-American characters, or there's other words that he's used, and that's one of the things you mentioned, using the word Negro um, at times, with maybe it wouldn't make historical sense to use that word. Um, so how, okay... Well, I guess, first question, did you, for your book, did you reread The Corpus, or how did you, what was your approach? I reread The Corpus. It's funny you mention that. Um, So I've been teaching The Corpus for three decades, basically, right? I mean, teaching is a very different experience than just reading, by the way. I mean, Mm -hmm. I never understand a novel until I teach it. I know Mm -hmm. that sounds odd, but that's why when I read a novel, I really like it. I create a course around it so I can teach it and understand it. Better. So um, teaching the work uh, kind of led me to ask certain questions. Then in about 2018, 2017, I started this project and I decided I'm going to read through every single fictional word that Roth produced. And I probably got around to most of his interviews. Uh, so I did weird things. I started tracking like uh, in, in a data oriented sort of way. I started tracking every intertext in Roth's work. Right. Um, what is it? What is an intertext? An intertext is when one work of well, fiction, in this case, alludes to another work of art. That's an intertext. Right. So when Philip Roth mentions the brothers Karamazov or when he mentions Hamlet or when he cites a line from Macbeth, that's an intertext. So I was very curious. I wanted to see what the patterns were. Who does he cite? That's going to be published in the journal Philip Roth Studies. And that was like the craziest thing I ever did as a scholar. I it just, it was insane. All right. I mean, the amount of work, because Roth is constantly intertexting, right? He's constantly referencing other authors. You want to talk about a difference between Updike and Roth, right? Between, Updike, between Roth and everyone, there is no author I know of that uses that technique as much as Philip Roth. All right. So that's one of the fun things I managed to do while reading through the entire oeuvre uh, again, that, that's re- that's really interesting. And he also has 
Okay, so he wrote 20 to 25 works of fiction. Uh, you he probably know the exact number. 28 novels and 25 short stories, if I'm correct. 53 in all. 28 novels, 25 short stories. I'm not counting novellas, so they're 53 in all. Right. Okay, and then there's the things that are somewhere between... Uh, um, because of, he's a very metafictional writer, you know, like, so, okay, this is for the nerds. I mean, do, do, what about the facts, which has this metafictional postscript in which his fictional alter ego, Nathan Zuckerman, reviews the work and says this shouldn't be published. Uh, how did you, how did you treat that one? Yeah, that's fiction. To me. That's fan- that, That's one of his best works. I mean, that is such an interesting work. Let me tell you what I think is really cool about the facts. In order to make the conclusion of the facts exciting, Right. Roth had to sharpen the contrasts with the first three or four chapters. This is I find this so brave of Roth. The first four chapters of the facts are kind of boring. And then Zuckerman in chapter five or six says, this is awful. Right. You can't even write without me. Don't dare write autobiography, Philip Roth. So now think about it. That means that Roth had to, like, tie his hands behind his back. And write like a schnook, right? Right in this plodding, uh, not introspective way. That's a serious, I call them like the evil Knievel of fictional gimmicks. That's a really, really hard thing for a writer to do, to hold back. He holds back. He holds back. And, you know, you're reading the facts and you're like, boring. I read all this stuff. And then you get to Zuckerman in that final chapter and he lights Philip Roth up. He says, that was awful. I'm bored with the nice guy. Cut the crap. You can't write without Zuckerman. So I'm just saying Roth took a lot of risks as a writer, and I really appreciate him for that. And that's the type of thing I want to show to my students. But I guess we have to get back to to race. Some of them, understandably, will get so hung up on the gender representations and the racial representations that they'll kind of do uh, – who is the writer? Um, Patai, I believe it was Daphne Patai tells this story about a friend who was reading The Humbling and got so upset at it that she threw it in the garbage mm-hmm. on a city subway platform, right? I hear these stories, right? I hear about smart people that are reading – and they get so triggered right, by Roth that they put them aside. Yeah, I well, the, the, just the humbling. I think is probably one of his worst. So this, I wouldn't. There's various reasons one could possibly get fed up with that. Uh, the, you know, the late work became more uneven in my layman's opinion. But um, but yeah, I I mean, the, there's definitely after he died, there were a lot of people writing, including me. I wrote this short piece that ran in the Weekly Standard, which has since folded, is now exists in an archive in the Washington Examiner. That was just like a personal reflection on on Roth, and yeah, a lot. I think. There's only more of those than when Updike died, uh, sort of like people, their their deep personal connection or even like revulsion or something at, at the text. Absolutely. Um, but Updike, I mean, they're, they're very different writers, right? I mean, you don't get this metafiction. I, uh, Updike's biographer is that Adam Begley. Uh, we once had him at Georgetown. And I just asked him, do you know of any works that were autofictional where there's a character named John? And if I recall what Begley told me, he said, no, actually, that's not something he did, right? And that's a, that's a crucial core Rothian move, right, to either bring a character into the text named Philip, right? He does that on five to six different occasions, or to bring a character into the text named Tarnapol or Zuckerman, who really resembles Philip Roth, right? And if you're right. going to write a biography of Philip Roth, this is my personal view, you have to deal with that theoretical question. Like, what is this guy doing, right? 
And why does he keep doing it, Aryeh? Why is a writer as talented as Philip Roth, why does he keep coming back to this particular way of telling a story which centers on a protagonist who we are led to believe is very much like him? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there are uh, Updike in his early period, the short stories and also some of the first novels was somewhat you know, semi-autobiographical, but like the centaur, one of maybe his first early, like great work has these uh, very strong autobiographical parts. I think the the character's father is a, has the same job as like a high school chemistry teacher or something. And then uh, having psoriasis, you know, the narrator has psoriasis, which Updike also had, but then there's this whole fantastical Greek mythology part where the characters suddenly are like Greek gods and stuff. And it's, it's totally off the wall. Um, but Updike is not daring you. Where's Waldo style to find him in there, right? That's what I find interesting. Like Roth is just, daring you by mentioning Newark, by right. mentioning baseball, right? There's so many reference points, reference points that Roth is trying to like draw you in. And I agree with you. This is what I think one of Begley's findings in that biography, which I haven't read in a while, was that Updike was a deeply autobiographical writer, right? Except there's not that gamesmanship in which the reader's process of understanding the fiction is constantly referring back to John Updike, right? right. Roth, that's impossible. That's and when, I don't know. I've never read any scholarship about Updike, just a very little bit Roth, but Updike also had these short story collections about this character, Beck. Beck. Who was somewhat, well, who was like, the, who was Roth. like, who, who, yeah, who was kind of like Roth, but it was like an authorial alter ego. So it's like Roth does it with his own thing and creates Zuckerman. And then Updike creates this character, Beck, who's Jewish and is kind of like, He's more and more like Roth than he is like Updike seemingly, and that's his you know novelist character who runs around and has comic misadventures and stuff. Um, so that is kind of interesting. And, and Updike also wrote like poetry that is more was maybe more from his own voice. But anyway, okay, it's it's funny to keep on mentioning these two people who are you know are sort of linked forever in our memory. Um, okay, but let's let's talk about uh, get back to the the article in Salon and how Roth. Uh, you know, wrote about black people throughout his his career. Yeah, this this was difficult, right? Um, I started off as a Roth fan, and then there's a moment where you flip a switch in your career and you become a Roth scholar, and that's a very different type of relationship to your source materials, right? So when you're working as a scholar, it's like there's this oath you take, and the oath is you're just going to look at this as clearly as you can, and you're not going to let your personal feelings. Um, enter into your analysis and teaching the, the Roth corpus to a lot of African-American students, because as you know, I work on the issue of so-called blacks and Jews, right? Um, I became very sensitive to a lot of the representation in his fiction. And I would ask the students what they made of it. And, you know, there's a wide variety of views amongst African-American readers, but a lot of them couldn't understand the specific function of the racial invective, right? It kind of took them by, it was like getting hit by a two by four. Like, why is this guy, why are these characters dropping end bombs? Right? Mm -hmm. I mentioned this about letting go, right? Why does Gabe Wallach, right, of all people, right, start dropping end bombs on page 320 of letting go? It kind of comes out of nowhere, right? So if you look at my analysis, I try to set Roth's portraiture of African-American characters within the broader context of 
the so-called black Jewish dialogue, which, which, as you and I know, fell apart in the late 60s. So what you'll notice is Roth's fiction starts to coarsen on this theme by around 67, 68, 69 and into the 70s. And we keep getting these same type of portraits of African-American characters. Now, he snaps out of it a little bit in The Human Stain. I'll, I think that's fair. I think that was the first time that Philip Milton Roth really thought about race, like thought about it, like just sat down and said, all right, what does it mean to be African-American in this country? Uh, the reviews are mixed uh, in terms of the degree to which he got it. But to me, that was a much more earnest effort than these types of minor characters and racial jokes and minstrelsy that we see. One other thing, Arye, uh, the scholar has to read everything. The fan doesn't, right? So the idea of being comprehensive in your analysis, right, is a big part of what scholars do when they engage in scholarly research, right? So I had to read every single thing, which we spoke about at the beginning. Yeah. So reading that, like, 1952, The Box of Truths. Did, did you read it in chronological order, or how did you, just, how no, did you do that? I didn't that? read it in chronological okay. order. A lot of it I was teaching, right, for two of those semesters I was teaching, so I kind of set up my syllabus to, like, poke and prod right, mm -hmm. at, at issues I was interested in at the particular moment. Um, so, you know, like reading through the entire corpus, I started to see this pattern and I feel this sense of guilt that I didn't notice it prior. Right? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I notice this? Right. So it was the box of truths, the great American novel, a short story he wrote called on the air, which sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I didn't understand why this type of portraiture was present. So that's what I wanted to understand. And we can go back to the blacks and Jews piece of it. I don't want to talk too much. I want right. you to redirect me. <laughs> but this is how I started um, this, this examination. Right. Okay. That's all, that's all very interesting. And so I, like I said, I've, I've read the corpus, but it's been, you know, 10, 15 years. And I, I haven't read any of the uncollected stories, I don't think. Um, you, you've uh, found that. So I guess if it's 1952, he must have been, this was like a student yep. thing. He would have been 19 or something when he wrote that. Um, and yeah, and, and I, his, his only short stories were published in, in Goodbye Columbus. I have a couple copies of books for possible reference. So here's an old, this is what you would have gotten if you bought Goodbye Columbus in 2003. Um, and those are his only short story collections, although he did write some other ones, but you have to like find the original Paris review or whatever to, to read it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, he, I mean, whether he's like the greatest, you know, English or American, you know, writer in, in the English language in the 20th century or something will be debated, but it's definitely one, it, it, one of the most like, um, focused on the self and his own identity, both in terms of like, you know, a Jew who was born in New York in 1933, et cetera, et cetera, but also just like who he, who he is and so forth. And so most of his main characters are some avatar of himself for over half, at least of the, um, of the works. And then he has this late, so he's playing with Zuckerman, who is an obvious, uh, alter ego, um, for, you know, 10 or so novels. And then towards the end of that period and starting in the nineties, uh, Zuckerman becomes the narrator of other people's stories. And, and this was, this became sort of his Roth's, you know, like late career Renaissance, and he won many awards, and so American Pastoral, I Married a Communist, and The Human Stain are the three in the, like, America Trilogy or something he ended up calling them. And each of those is telling, 
is using Zuckerman, is now an old man, um, and telling someone else's story. Um, so, so there's definitely change there, and you could say he, you know, he was just so obsessed with himself for so many years, and of course, masturbation is a theme in Roth. Um, so it was an onanistic uh, sort of thing for for many years, where he was just writing basically about himself, and maybe the other any character who wasn't that main character lacked, you know, the richness or fullness that you would possibly hope for. And although I think that that would be uh, overbroad uh, criticism. Um, but then, yeah, t t towards the end, he starts making other types of people. The focus is not, not entirely, you know, he returns to Zuckerman and Exit Ghost and so forth. Um, but yeah, okay, so the things, so some, I was in reading, reading the piece, some of the things I definitely did not remember and were surprising, like, yeah, why is the, uh, the N-word used in, um, in Letting Go? I had no memory of that whatsoever. I have almost no memory of Letting Go to begin with. I found it very boring when I read it after college, uh, and this was his first novel. Is that correct? That's his first novel. Well, yeah, and oh, it was sort of, a, I don't know, he's trying to be Henry James or something. It's like 600 pages. And I, I remember, I remember almost nothing about it, honestly. Um, and then he, uh, I, so I have no answer for that. Um, and then some of the, and then, but then you also have, uh, in Portoy's complaint, there's a discussion of the famous racial slur, uh, starting with the letter N, and, um, and and Portoy saying, you know, if he ever heard his father saying that word, he would like stab him with a dagger, or or something. So, you know, and and those those are written within the same decade, I think. So. You know, he knew the power of of that word. Then, um, I'm not. So this is not a question, obviously. But I'm also thinking about like, but after Portnoy, he goes into this more sort of antic period, um, in which you have the breast, which is a take uh, sort of crazy sex parody of uh, the Metamorphosis, in which a man turns into a giant breast. Uh, you have Our Gang, which is ostensibly a, a play about. Richard Nixon, and which eventually goes to hell and runs for the position of devil. And you have the great American novel, which I think is probably tied with the humbling for the worst of uh, the worst Roth novel, which is this sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. it. It's like trying to be a totally comic, wacky, almost like Mad Magazine sort of take on like the history of baseball, but with all sorts of totally off the wall stuff crammed into it. With, and then with a lot of like literary illusions or pun or jokes or something crammed in and it's it's yeah it's like turgid and awful and just doesn't work at all but there's th this would probably i don't know if you agree or not it contains the most like racist uh you know portrayals uh in in his work would you would you agree oh yeah i mean he goes like the full joseph conrad there now he always does it with a with a wink and a nod right um he's he's intertexting with melville he's intertexting with joseph conrad it's just not funny, right? It's really not funny, and it's beneath the great Philip Roth. I think, uh, look, uh, that piece in Salon got a lot of pushback, all right? I mean, nasty tweets, um, folks telling me that I didn't understand how to read literature, um, all sorts of slurs and insults, how dare you, right? But I'm kind of holding my ground here, right? Because what I'm saying is I'm not saying let's cancel Philip Roth. I'm saying I want to better understand what he was thinking, what the conditions were that made it possible to even write that way in 1974 and 1973. But I think there was something behind it, right? So let me give you a more recent – I mean there's this idea that Roth matured. A lot of my colleagues 
uh, especially um, feminists. There are all types of feminists, right? But feminists who like Roth, and there is a column of really good feminist scholars who like Roth and mm-hmm. see him as a feminist, right? They often make the argument that he grew up, that after Portnoy's complaint, he stopped lampooning Jewish moms, which is basically true if you think about it, right? And a lot of his portraiture of women changes. Okay, fine. So let's go to Plot Against America. All right, Plot Against America um, has a chapter called Loudmouth Jew, which you know very well, and we all saw it on the HBO series, right, which I wrote about, I believe, for Lit Hub. And the Roth family, autofiction, are adventuring through Washington, D.C., and they encounter racial slur after racial slur, right? Microaggressions and macroaggressions. People calling them Jews, giving them dirty looks, right? Right, so, so just for people who don't know, this is an alternate history that Roth wrote. I think it came out in 2005 or so. And it, it, it the imagines what if Charles Lindbergh had been nominated for president by the GOP in 1936, um, which apparently is something that was some poss- live possibility at the time, obviously didn't happen. And then Lindbergh, uh, defeats FDR and uh, America like signs a non-aggression treaty or something with Nazi Germany and uh, anti-Semitism becomes much more prevalent in in America because of that. And it was adapted by HBO uh, about a year ago for in a series. Which started off very well. It faded a bit at the end, but I thought it was a promising start, right? Roth is a very hard writer to film. We might want to discuss why that that's, is. Yeah, that's the thing. Almost, I've, actually, I, I don't know if I've actually seen any of the other ones because they always get such awful reviews and i'm like why why would i spend two hours watching this thing i got like you know everyone was scathing about it so i don't so i don't know if i watched actually some of it didn't complete <laughs> plot against america the six-part series and i don't think i've watched any of the other film adaptations of, of him all right so back to the key issue right so here is roth sensitively showing us white christian nationalists uh hating on jews right and arousing our rage But then there's a scene in that same chapter where Sandy, his brother, who's an artist, goes back to the room and is very interested by the so-called Negro bellhop and starts drawing him. All right. So, I mean, if you're a professor of literature, like a lot of your bells go off here. Right. And this is like a long, like three paragraphs. Right. He liked him because of of his hair and because of his skin color and X, Y and Z and things I don't even feel comfortable saying. And again, I'm asking myself, was Roth thinking? What was he thinking when he wrote this, right? Why in a chapter about the scourge of anti-Semitism not understand the uh, the Orientalist gaze of Sandy seeking out black subjects because they're so, so darn interesting to draw, right? It's the same thing that a Christian nationalist artist might have done. A white Christian nationalist might have said, oh, it's really interesting to draw black people. We know about portraits of Jewesses in the late 19th century. It's the same move, the exoticized other, right? So, I mean, I'm not this Foucauldian, I'm not a man of the radical left, right? But it struck me as a major contradiction in the moral universe of the plot against America, right? And other African-American critics have called him out on other aspects of that story. So Stanley Crouch, who was a friend of Roth, uh, basically said, where are black people in this story? All right. So this is a story about white Christian nationalists in 1941, 1942. Right. How do black people figure in all of this? And why don't you think that black people wouldn't have been allies to Jews in the story world that you've created. That's a very, very good point. So mm-hmm. 
I feel there's a lot of unthought, poorly thought out racial imagining in Roth's work. And because I can't be a fan when I read him on this, right? There are things about Roth I love, right? But this I find really lacking, like questions he didn't ask himself, right? Possibilities he never explored. I'm allowed to do that, right? Are you? I'm, <laughs> I'm a professor, I'm allowed to do that. Yes, what, certainly. Are... And I would, I would think, you know, at in in my opinion, Plot Against America is is his last masterpiece. I think there's some people who see it as sort of facile, and it is it's kind of like a not sci-fi, but it's it's like ultimate history, which is sort of like a disreputable genre in in some ways. Um, but it also, yeah, it, it is. The characters are all are him and his family as they would have been in in 1936. So, uh, or uh, so it's like a love letter, or not 36, like somewhat later than that. So it's like a love letter to his his family in in, in some ways. Uh, I mean, I one thought that came to me is, you know, he, he so he writes about Weequaic, which is this enclave neighborhood in Newark that was almost entirely Jewish, and how this was sort of, and he had this, like, idyllic childhood, you know, running through the streets, and, and it was just, like, you know, the greatest childhood he could have ever had, and he grew up, like, loving America, and, you, you know, it was all the, everyone who was, who lived there was a, the child of, or grandchild of Jewish immigrants, and they were, you know, the, so uh, this is one of his huge themes, um, and actually, just as a side note, very early on in the pandemic, I um, was looking for ways to occupy myself, and I drove out to Weequake. I'd never actually been there before, um, uh, despite growing up, like, you know, eight miles away um, in, in South Orange, a, a suburb of Essex County. And yeah, so I drove around there just to, and so I, like, saw the high school that he attended, and I, I didn't know where his house was. But you can tell, you know, sort of a, so basically this neighborhood emptied out after World War II and th- through the period of the... Newark riots and you know there's basically no Jews there anymore, but there are like Jewish cemeteries and stuff. Anyway, um, yeah, it's possible that you can imagine Sandy Roth more or less not encountering a black person if this truly was like an ethnic enclave where you know where like the Newark was like divided up by wards and there was like the black wards and the Italian wards, the Polish wards, and the Jewish wards, and they all as a child they would all just sort of stay in their own places because there was no you know the schools were probably were not there definitely wasn't like busing or anything. And so it's possible that he, that Sandy never, um, you know, had really seen a black person up close before possible. I have no idea. I also think when Roth is in control of his powers, like there's, there's nothing he didn't think about, you know, in in the work that would, that's, that's my opinion. Like the very late stuff, really there's a decline quality, the humbling and so forth. Not so good. But um, I think, you know, he didn't do anything by accident, I think. And and there's one of the reviews of the Roth, biography, which is somewhat very creatively written uh, as Roth, we'll get into this in, in a moment, um, notes that, like, you know, for one novel, he would have, like, 15 boxes of drafts, and, you know, he just, like, went through it over and over and over again. And so I assume, you know, if he if he put it in there, like, he meant to put it in there for a reason. It wasn't just, like, a slip of the, of, of, of the mind or something. Um, so, yeah, but... I, uh, so that's, I don't know, yeah, so I, I mean, he definitely, it definitely is sort of an exoticizing of the other type thing, like, almost literally, like, the, this boy who has, like, artistic talent, you know, is, is fascinated. I, there's also a part where he's, like, he wants to draw a horse, right? Like, he's never actually seen a horse before, um, and that's one of the reasons he wants to, like, go out to the country in this, <laughs> this Just Folks program that the government sets up to, like, send inner-city Jews out to the country to, like, um, make them more Gentile, uh, but he, like, really wants to go there so he can, like, see see farm animals so he can draw them. So you can kind of see, like, 
you know, he's never really seen a horse before. He's also never really seen a black person before. And, and maybe that's why the, the that's in there. That's, uh, that's just off the top of the dome there. So, but, um, yeah. So, okay. I, I've been talking for, for a bit. Do you have any, any, any thoughts well, on that? I mean, you know, so you, you said something interesting that the great writers are completely in control of their story world, right? They create this world and they're aware of its laws of physics and its rules and its mores, right? So one of the scholars I cited in that chapter, it's actually really interesting. I'd never read him before. He's not a, you know, he's not in the center of Roth studies. He said, Roth doesn't seem to recognize that Newark was a, a Jim Crow city in the North. And if you look at Roth's asides, and that's really what they are, but there are dozens of them, right? Dozens of asides on the blacks of Newark um, from roughly Portnoy's complaint uh, up and through the counterlife to patrimony, right? And then finally in Plot Against America. None of them seem to show any empathy or sympathy for that, right? Um, if this was, in fact, a Jim Crow city, so I started reading histories of, of black Newark. And my thinking was, why didn't I've been reading about Newark for 30 years with Philip Roth, right? Why didn't I know this about this city? Why didn't I know that these policies existed? So, okay, that doesn't invalidate Philip Roth, right? It just means that on racial issues, he's not the guy I'm going to go to for what literature often can give me and only literature can give me, right? Which is a much deeper understanding um, of, of a problematic. I find. The defensive move, are ye, really interesting, right? So I write about very controversial topics, all right? I write about heresy. I write about blasphemy. So I can be very meta about this. And I, I write about secular. So I'm used to secularism, right? I'm used to people getting mad at me, right? <laughs> and it doesn't rile me the way it used to, right? What fascinates me is the reasons that are deployed in the anger. And there's a lot of frustration from usually older white men about saying these types of things about Philip Roth, right? And that is something I want to learn more about. Like, I want more Twitter nastiness, right? I want more <laughs> beefs on from people that are upset. And uh -huh. I think in his own way, Roth inadvertently realized what the problem was. So let's cut to the chase. What was the problem? Rage on the part of these older, middle-class Jewish-American men that Newark burned, right? And they lost their businesses, and they lost their pastoral we-quake, and they had to leave. Yeah, and this, this is the central theme of, or one of the central themes of American pastoral. Right, okay, so Lou Levov, right? Just talking about what they did to Newark, what they did to Newark. So that's good in a way, right? What did Chekhov say? You don't have to solve the problem. You have to articulate the problem. So Roth articulates what the problem is, right? That the white Jews of Newark feel this anger over what African-Americans who are not Jewish did to Newark. But to me, that's step one. I wanted Roth to go to step two, which he starts to do in Human Stain. Finally, right? Finally in Human Stain, Philip Roth asks himself a question he never asked himself before, right? Um, what might African-Americans make of Jewish folk, right? Um, when you have the father of Coleman Silk uh, just talking about how Jews are scouts, right? And they kind of show African-Americans the way. And even if you had to deal with unsavory, that was the word, unsavory Jews like Fenstermen, right? They have something to teach us, the African-American community. All right, that's good. That's good. You're flipping perspectives now. It's not this complete, 
like Jewish inner monologue, right? Roth is trying to imagine what African-Americans think about Jews. And to me, that was progress. Mm-hmm. Limited, but progress nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And, and for people who haven't read it, uh, Human Stain involves a um, someone who passes the color line, who uh, grew up a light-skinned African-American man and then you know, changes his identity to become a Jewish man and becomes like a classics professor at this Athena college. Is that what's called the imaginary college that, uh, Athene and Athena, why it changes unriddle the mysteries of Philip Roth. Okay. Right? So, so maybe he wasn't fully in control of everything. If, if there's a sort of bloopers or something like that. Um, but yeah. And, and okay. I, so I just, another side note. So it was sort of talked about or understood that that novel was inspired by the life of Anatole Broyard. Um, who was a book critic for the New York Times, who also like passed the color line and never told anyone, including his children, until he was on his deathbed, that uh, you know he grew up as an African-American in New Orleans, I think. And there's a very, very good memoir. I've mentioned on the show before, his daughter Bliss Broyard wrote about it. Um, and so this was, I, you know, maybe that's one of the more famous examples of this sort of thing happening in you know, post-World War II America, and then it somehow got into the Wikipedia page <laughs> that that this was the inspiration. And then Roth wrote a uh, sort of, I don't know, he, he wrote a like letter to Wikipedia, like detailing all the ways his the Wikipedia entry was, was wrong. And, you know, he was, at this point, he was in the 70s, I guess, he wasn't like a guy of the internet. Um, but that was one of the like later things he wrote. I think, did he publish it in the Times? I can't remember. But, um, but, uh, just a weird connection is that when I was thinking about your piece, I was thinking about another piece, another book by John Updike, which is Rabbit Redux, um, which I, so when I, in this course I took in college, we read just the first rabbit book, and but not the other one, so then I found the, I found the second rabbit novel, Rabbit Redux, in like a bargain bin thing, and started reading it, and so this would have been, you know, 2004 or so I was reading it, and it is not good. And it includes this very um, laughable, in retrospect, character. Scooter. Scooter. Skeeter, I think his name is. Skeeter. Skeeter, right. Skeeter. Okay. Who's, who's, I don't know how you would describe him in a way that wouldn't be offensive, but he's sort of like a cartoon of a black, you know, radical type, street smart kind of hustler guy. And so I was looking at the Wikipedia page for Rabbit Redux just to get the details right in my memory. And it quotes, uh, it was like reception at the time. And it says it was like received. This novel was received rapturously at the time, quoting Anatole Broyard, saying this is like you know another masterpiece from Updike. And then you know just me, me reading it thirty five years later, I was like, this is a joke. I mean the 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 character talks is like a like the scene from Airplane where they're talking jive. Like that's basically how how this character is written in my in my as I remember it reading it seventeen years ago, and comparing that back to Roth. So he did have these you know in, in the Great American Novel. He has these, this, like, totally cartoonish, like, you know, Looney Tunes sort of sensibility um, towards everything, including race. Um, but I, you, you'd have to, I think we, you know, we should look at it. Oh, we need to contextualize or something or put him within his time. And so at the time, you know, 71 or whatever, when Updike published Rabbit Redux, people were like, you know, another masterpiece, even though it had this cartoonish black character written by a, you know, middle-aged white man, um... And that was accepted. So that way, at least some people, including Tool Boyard, saw that as acceptable at the time. Um, and 
how, oh, so uh, getting back for some sort of question here, you know, how much is it just like, okay, things were different in, you know, 1972 when he wrote Great American Novel. Oh, we've, you know, mores are different, but also just our understanding of things are different. Can we just say he was a man of his time? He was born in 1933. You know, what can we expect, like, racial enlightenment from a, from a white guy? Well, you know, a benediction from Anatole Briard, right, who was passing, right, is a sort of weak benediction for conversation. <laughs> you know, if you want racial redemption, I don't think you'd get it from the tortured and fascinating Anatole Briard. Um, but the New York Times gave, you know, the New York Times said, like, this is good at the time, basically. Of course, right? But uh, my criteria for this is where there are other perspectives at the time uh, that people could have read and could have told you this is a terrible way to portray somebody. And absolutely. This is the era of black power. So you're, you're telling me Stokely Carmichael uh, and crew uh, in that moment or Leroy Jones. Leroy Jones. Right. right. So that's um, someone who we should definitely mention. Leroy Jones, who changed his name to Amiri Baraka, who is maybe the other great pro- literary product of Newark. And his son is actually now the mayor of Newark, Ros Baraka. Um, he, you know, he, so he grew up in Newark also. And I didn't really know what about the, that they had some exchanges, Roth and Jones, as he was known at the time, um, and maybe they didn't <laughs> like each other that much uh, at the time. To get back to right, but to get back to your criteria, right? There, it's one thing to accuse an era and say, "Why didn't people in this era see the misogyny?" Right, and you have people say, "Oh, because nobody saw it." All right, I don't know if those if those arguments are true or not, but but that is really not the case with Roth in 1974 writing great American novel. Right, there are a lot of people talking about racist depiction uh, in fiction and in the arts and in cinema. It's a thing, right? So he's not flying blind here. Right, mm-hmm. he's not unaware that this criticism exists. And I point to in the text this review he wrote of um, the Dutchman. And Leroy Jones just jumps all over him using invective that he probably shouldn't have used. But I do understand some of the rage, right? The rage is you should know better, a so-called liberal intellectual, right? And I think, yeah, so I'm going to say it again, are you? I think by 1974, Roth should have known better. I'm willing to forgive him the 1952 box of truths because it's 1952 and he's 19 years old. All right, I, I I totally get that. Right, but by 1974 to be so famous, I mean, you know, post Portnoy, he's such a famous writer, and to engage to traffic in those types of culture, I'm just I'm just not cool with it. All right, but let's move on. Right, he doesn't let go of this. Right, this issue of Newark uh, mesmerizes him. For two more decades, right? He will not let go of the rage of the Jewish father over what they, the African Americans, did to Newark, and it's it's a real feeling, right? He's oh, described sure. something which was real. So you know, all honor to Philip Roth. He just didn't get to the other side of that, and the other side of that is well, why are African Americans rioting? in Newark, right? Um, what did white flight or blockbusting or redlining do to these? De- How were the Jews the beneficiaries of certain tacit forms of racism? Those are the questions I would have wanted Roth to ask. And I guess my conclusion in that, in that chapter is I don't go to Philip Roth for seminal insights about race. Right? <laughs> right. There are things that Roth will give me and my students where I'm like, nobody can break this down for you, kid. 
like Philip can, right? Race in America is not one of those subjects, right? I guess yeah. I'm allowed to say that, right? I mean, I'm allowed <laughs> to say there's a lot of great stuff in Philip Roth. This wasn't that good. This, yeah, this... I, I don't think he. I mean, I don't think he's a universalist talent like like Shakespeare or something. Obviously, there's not many Shakespeare's in human history, um, and I don't know. Like, I'm sure Roth gets translated into other languages for other countries' reading publics, but but maybe. I mean, he is so located in place. All his characters are born in New York in 1933 in Wequaik, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, just getting back to the the my you know personal overlap. You know, I grew up hearing about the Newark riots. Um, my my grandfather owned a liquor store that was on uh, Irvington Avenue. I, was it in Newark or was it in Irving? I can't remember. But um, that was somehow spared during the the Newark riots. Um, Family legend unclear about why a liquor store would not have been looted during a during a mass riot. Um, it's interesting to think about '67 as the year Portnoy and um, is that right or is it '69? '69. Okay, He's so writing Portnoy's in '67, '68. I mean, yeah, a, and '67 is the year of the of the Frank New York riots. Text by the way, right? And, and there's also Portnoy's complaint. People don't recognize. I feel now it should be said, right? That thing's like a mess. I mean, it's funny as all get go. It's hysterical, right? But if you look at the way he put it together. It's like this Frankenstein text of different things he wrote at different times, right? It's pastiche. So it's a right. horrible text. I don't know. Do you teach uh, literature? It's a. It's very <laughs> I am a student, not a, te- not a teacher. We did, yeah, I did. I, but in this class I took in you know, 2004 or whatever, Portnoy was one of the texts. And um, but that was I, I had read that, you know, like the summer before this class because I never read Roth before. And I just was like, oh, Porter's Complaint is going to be honest. I heard of the book before. We didn't really know anything about it. You know, reading that is like, if you have even, you know, it's like nothing you've ever read before, even for someone growing up watching like Seinfeld and stuff in the 90s. It's just like, it's crazy in the things he did and like got away with or something. And just the total like sort of, yeah, it's it's anarchic. It's very extremely sexually explicit. It's offensive in a dozen different ways. Um, I, I recommend it. People should, should check it out. But yeah, it's, it's, it didn't, it, it came from, he would sort of do this shtick at dinner parties. This is the legend, at least where he would like play a character who was like an exaggerated version of himself, or like, it was like the next door neighbor or something who was c- complaining all the time about, about the, um, it, yeah, I think it was like the upstairs neighbors or something. It was like a parody of that family. And he would just like go off and sort of it. Uh, it was like he was doing one person improv or something, and do these comic monologues and set the table a roar, um, you know. And and everyone liked it. And then he decided to put that antic, you know, irreverent comic voice into the text instead of trying to be like you know the Jewish Henry James or something. Here's a harder question. You ready? Okay, because I told you I work on secularism and freedom of speech issues, right? This this is going to surprise you, right? Um, Lenny Bruce is seen as one of the exemplars for Roth as he's thinking through these issues in the 60s. Lenny Bruce runs afoul of blasphemy laws. He's one of the last people to whom that would happen. I find it very curious that in the roaring 60s, as all these Jewish figures are crossing lines and um, breaking taboos and getting thrown in jail for it, which was the case for Lenny Bruce, and this ruined his life, Roth is silent. All right. So, I, I mean, it's just something very odd to me that 1969, after the laws about blasphemy had been changed, this is the famous Brennan decision in 1962, it was a dissent that he wrote, right? I'm curious as to why big, bad, brave Philip Roth 
waited until 69. Now, it's a, it's a, it is a text that really pushes boundaries. Don't get me wrong, but I have a kind of curiosity. If I didn't have other things going in my life and I were a true <laughs> micro specialist, I would ask that question, right? Why 1969? Why didn't he do the full Nabokov, right? Think about Lolita, right? Why didn't Philip Roth, after the um, renome he gets from uh, Goodbye Columbus in 1959, he was a big deal, right? Why didn't he go... Winner of the National Book Award, right? It doesn't say that. Actually, <laughs> why? Yes, winner of the National... And he was like 23 or something when this came out and he won the yeah. National Book Award. Why didn't he test those waters? Why didn't he cross those boundaries, which is traditionally what Jewish and African-American artists had been doing in the 60s? So I'm not accusing Roth of cowardice per se. It's a, it's a question to me. And the thing about Roth is they're all these questions about the guy and the well there, there's a biography that is 900 pages that's gonna be coming out the, the reviews so far have been mixed it's unclear whether any actual i mean that is an interesting question i mean I, my response is in the beginning you know he wanted to be the good jewish boy and then mm-hmm. there was this other side of it and so mm-hmm. letting go is like the 600 page novel that's totally unmemorable maybe maybe Criti- you know, there's critical interest in it still, but I, like I don't, I remember there's you know there's a character named Gabe. That's about all I remember. And, um, you know, he was he wanted to be like that, and then, you know, obviously a lot of crazy stuff happened in the '60s, and maybe he saw that like there was an opening for this sort of thing that was totally off the wall and different than what happened before. I mean. I mean, Lenny, it's interesting to think about Lenny Bruce as, you know, a forerunner to Roth. I mean, one thing, I don't know a ton about Bruce, honestly, but I've heard someone say this, and I somewhat confirmed it by watching or listening to some of, one or two of his routines. It's not actually that funny today. I mean, humor is very time-specific, and so probably even just watching stand-up from 15 years ago, you'd be like, oh, why are they laughing so much at all this? But, so, Bruce was, was in some ways one of the original stand-up comedians and was defining the form, but it wasn't, it just... It seems not that funny. If you read, I don't know, when I read Portnoy in 2003, I was like laughing out loud. Like it still is, it's more eternal in its humor and transgressiveness than, you know, than what Bruce was was doing at the time. Here's the problem. So my students aren't laughing anymore, right? Okay, so that's, that's, that's interesting. And that's when I started our conversation off, which I thank you for, with the comment that this is not your grandfather's Philip Roth book. <laughs> I, I, I wonder think- if my I, – I, I have to wonder whether my Jewish grandfather uh, ever read any Philip Roth. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask my mom. Um, but it would be interesting <laughs> to know he, he was the one who owned this, this liquor store and was so, a bit – I mean he was closer to – you know, maybe he was 15 years younger than Roth's parents himself, but probably would have identified more with the parental figures than with the than with Alexander Porto himself. So we, we have to ask ourselves, are you, um, insofar as if, if Berliner Blau is relaying something which is accurate, right? For, is he accurate when he says this younger generation is not feeling Philip Roth? Very mixed in those classrooms, right? What does this mean about his literary posterity, right? So it's one thing to write for his graying audience. It's another thing to write for Jewish liberals, right, uh, who really like him. But who's going to read Philip Roth 20, 30 years from now? That was my concern writing this book, right? My concern was you know, there, there are some real roadblocks uh, to a full embrace of what is great about Philip Roth. And I feel that a lot of folks, they hear the name now. 
And they're like, no, I don't want to read him. I heard he was misogynist or I heard he was a, a creeper or I heard from this Berliner Block guy uh, <laughs> that, that he was kind of a racist or some of his prose was, was racially problematic. So that's a very big question for me. I'd like to see a new generation of Roth scholars lead a new generation of Roth readers through this process, right? I don't know if that new generation on Ether's side really exists. Uh, there's some other Roth scholars out there. I won't mention them by name, but I feel they're ready to do this, all right? They're ready to, to confront the issues that I've confronted, as they do in their own work, and teach their students about this and get them to appreciate Roth, but put it in a certain context, mm -hmm. right? That's something more seriously about literature. The big problem is that people aren't signing up for literature courses anymore. That's a much larger <laughs> right. problem, right? Which is something that Roth foresaw. So I'm a little worried about his posterity. The book that if I had to bet money on a Roth book that might sell well in 20 years, I'd say Nemesis, right? Because there's very little in Nemesis that is objectionable. And we've just been through the plague ourselves right so this is his last published book that's about a polio epidemic in indoor and it's very tightly written it's got what a lot of roth scholars call his laconic jersey style right where it's not big jamesian sentences where everything's all puffed out right it's taught i don't think it's his best work but what will Roth's To Kill a Mockingbird be? Which is kind of funny because harper lee only had To Kill a Mockingbird right roth has 28 Right. But what of all the works, what will end up being read a lot in high schools and first year college courses? Right. I, unfortunately, I would say Nemesis. It's not going to be the anatomy lesson, which I think is his greatest work. Right. Because the anatomy lesson will make your hair stand on edge in how um, how provocative it is. I just think it's a fantastic novel. So I'm trying to think through the next 30, 40 years of Roth readers. Um, and I just think we have to really confront some of these issues about Roth that this readership is not comfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you, you say it very well. It's interesting to think about. I'm I don't have contact with you know 19 year old college students aside from what people you know when people see like a, a TikTok that they post on Twitter like that. So I'm far removed from you know the mores of this of the current generation of college students. I mean. You know, if the if the it, it sort of connecting this the things that ripped from the headlines, this whole stupid debate about like Dr. Seuss books that they're the estate has withdrawn. Um, you know, if there's if the current if eighteen year olds today think if there's a if there's a novel that has racial slurs in it, then I should reject this entirely. I think that's wrong, and literature professors should talk to them about it. You know, then you're throwing out um, Huckleberry Finn, of course, along with you know, lots of other stuff that was written, um, you know, uh, before the year 2007 or something. Um, so there's that. I mean, the, to me, the misogyny stuff, I, and, you know, the, obviously this, what we're talking about is an excerpt from a chapter from a book that is about more than just um, Roth and race. And uh, I haven't had a chance to look at your stuff about Roth and misogyny or Me Too or so forth. I mean, I think that is much more the thing that people are just like, yeah, throwing the book across the room and saying, I'm, do I'm done with this stuff. And I remember a comment that a fellow student of mine made circa 2004 saying like, yeah, uh, talking about both Roth and Updike saying like, you know, the 
the female characters are just so so bad. And I I remember thinking, I don't know if I said this in the class, like the in a lot of these novels, you know, the the male character is presented in this super super compelling way, but they're also a horrible person. And you need to end like you're drawn in by Portnoy uh, because of his humor, his language, so forth. But he was a horrible child and did horrible things, including masturbating into his family's dinner. And then he's a horrible adult as well. Um, it's just that you're like Roth tricks you into f- finding, you know, uh, being enchanted by this character. But stepping back, you're like, you know, th- this guy sucks. Um, but it's still it, it. So there's this hard conflict. And the thing is, the, the female characters often just don't have the like well-rounded, captivating aspect to them. And so... You know, he based some characters off of his first wife who um, faked a pregnancy in order to fool him into being married, apparently, and then was killed in a car accident. Um, and I think the monkey, the, the character in uh, Portnoy is, is based on this character. And it's just like, like, she's also horrible and crazy. It's just like, she's not as compelling and interesting. Like, the spark of life is not within yeah. her in the way it is for, for Portnoy or Zuckerman or something. Does this... Um, how does yeah. it strike you? There's a Me Too question here, right? I mean, why does he keep dragooning these women that he knew into his fiction? All right. And that's Me Too territory, right? So um, if you're taking people you know and your intimate stories, right, and you're filming them or you're writing about them, right, there are certain ethical lines there that need to be thought about very, very carefully. And I would hope any biographer would ask himself or herself that question, right? What is happening when Philip Roth keeps taking the women with whom he's had romantic relationships and putting them often against their will in his fiction and often portrayals that are extremely brittle or negative or shrill? Um, There are great women in Roth. Uh, There are a lot of women that I don't find at all interesting in Roth. I would call your attention to Olivia Hudden in Indignation. I think that's one of Roth's most precious portraits of a troubled and fascinating and kind and decent uh, young woman, right? Uh, and then there are portraits that leave you just completely puzzled. Like, I never understood Maria Zuckerman in The Counterlife. I mean, there's a lot of words, and he ends the book talking about her enrapturing brains, right? Uh, but I, I just don't feel it. Some of you often hear, we've been talking a lot about Updike. A lot of my colleagues on literature faculties, uh, a lot of my colleagues who are women and read as feminists, tell me they find it much easier to read Updike's women than Roth's women. That's something I've heard a lot, right? Like 50 times, right? Oh yeah, Updike's women, they're kind of like women to me, right? Whereas <laughs> maybe they're stuck in Portnoy's, right? There's a uh-huh. book by Updike, which I would recommend um, wholeheartedly. It's called Couples. That's a really interesting book. This right? is Updike's, one of his breakouts, right? It was like 68. I think I actually had that and... You know. Started reading it and then just put it aside. Never went back to it, and that was twenty years ago. Maybe I need to give it a, a second look. I just yeah, Update captivated me much less. But yeah, I mean, he, so Update had S. He had Witches of Eastwick, um, and and the the sequel to that one. Um, and so he had, you know, narrators or main characters, protagonists who were women. Whereas with Roth, it's really just when she was good. I think is the only one that has a female protagonist. Is that right? There's a story, yeah, for the most part. There's a story he wrote called His Mistress's Voice, which is just a woman speaking about her lover who seems to be Philip Roth again. (laughs) Uh, It's the last short story he wrote, if I'm not mistaken. So, yes, it's pretty rare 
that Roth will ever think things through. Ah, there are some stories that I discovered, I discovered in quotes, everyone knows, but nobody writes about them. He wrote one in 1960 called The Good Girl and another one called The Psychoanalytic Special. Uh, I would urge people, one, to read my book and then two, to read these stories. Are, are these collected? Did the Library of America collect these or? No, they're not even there. One's in Esquire. Or I've got it in the bibliography somewhere. Okay, So you need to dig through the archives to, uh, to find so, the stuff. Yeah, uh, but my theory is that Roth was doing actually a lot of interesting, interesting exploration on gender between 1959 to 1969. He was asking questions about women as characters, right, and women as human beings, right, that he never asked again. So uh, whereas my colleagues say Roth matured, I kind of think Roth devolved, right? Uh, there was a moment in the 60s where he kept writing about these really strong women. So just to review The Good Girl, Psychoanalytic Special, and When She Was Good, right? So between those three works, two short stories uh, and a short novel, Roth really is pondering what it's like to be a woman in the United States, what it's like to deal with creepy men, what it's like to kind of be – um, uh, the recipient of of chauvinism and sexism. So he definitely had it in him. Are you? Right. But I mean, so I can think of a contemporary sort of, you know, a contemporary critic, or maybe we wouldn't even call them a critic, just someone who's angry online might say something like, Philip Roth wasn't a woman. Philip Roth wasn't black. How dare he assume that he could know the black or female experience or whatever. And so he really did just, he mined his own experience in a way that, few other writers did and in this era where people get mad if you know a straight person plays a gay character on screen or something like that you know maybe maybe roth is like okay he just he wrote what he knew like he he wasn't he he wrote when she was good i don't think like i said i read it in 2003 i didn't like it particularly at the time um but then he's he stuck with um uh, uh jewish men who were uh, writers who were born in Wequaic in 1933. And you, you can't say he didn't write from his own lived experience, a, a term popular these days. Um, so, so yeah, so it wasn't like, yeah, I mean, he, he wasn't trying to like steal valor or something like that. And, and uh, or like, you know, Update wrote these crazy novels like The Coup, where he's, you know, it takes place in Africa in this imaginary country where there's a coup and he's the ex-president or something or king and he's fleeing and, and yeah, writing about witches and all sorts of wackiness, whereas Roth mostly stayed within this very realist sort of sort of vain and, and and focused on characters who are very much very much like him so what's so bad about that uh no nothing's wrong with that uh mark schechner a great roth scholar i think his line was roth could only write about three things right jews newark and himself right um so updike wrote a review of the 1993 operation shylock where he basically made the same argument that Roth keeps writing about himself. He said his magnifying obsession with himself, right? And, and Operation uh, Shylock is the most, I think, metafictional of the entire oeuvre in which it's a it's supposedly a memoir, an autobiography, something in which Philip Roth is, he's like, everything else, you know, I always played around with this stuff. That was all fake. This one is real. This really happened. And it's just total craziness of a, a doppelganger in Israel and, you know, things that never could have could have happened in real life and becoming a CIA agent and stuff. But I, that's actually my favorite of, of, of all of Roth is Operation Shala. Good. At least you're not one of those Sabbath theater people. Right? <laughs> oh, I love Sabbath theater, man. That's the good stuff. I, I've never, 
That's it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, you know, I read it relatively early on when I was getting into him and it's, it, I mean, it's very dark. It's, it's, it's one of the darkest ones, although it's in the nineties, whereas his latest period was all this, this stuff about death and, and, and aging and decrepitude and the dying animal and so forth. Um, so, but you kind of had to, that's one, this is, that's like the, uh, I, I, I've thought about it. Like that's not the entry level drug into Roth. Like you need to have like read 10 of the previous ones in order to get Operation Shylock because it's so self, self-referential about his persona and, and his previous work. And, and people are arguing about his work, you know, his old novels. Like there's this, he has an argument with a Palestinian academic about Gabe and letting go like in this, in this novel. So it, it's very, it's very metatextual or whatever. Um, so, okay, well, let me, uh, so let's just mention briefly these, um, this Blake Bailey, renowned biographer, Roth selected him. Apparently there was a sort of a, um, you know, there, there were multiple people who were vying for this. People were selected and then kicked out. Um, and Roth finally chose this guy. Um, and so the book is 900 pages. It is coming out soon. There's been some reviews. And so one, one review is by, um, uh, Kristen Lorenzen, uh, in book form, we'll link to it. The headline is The Vying Animal. Great headline. And this one is more of a review of Roth as a person, I guess, or his life, kind of. But he has this, Lorenzen has this devastating final paragraph that is sort of a, I don't know, it's like an indictment of Roth the person, but is like how to become, if you want to be a great writer, like you need to do all these things. And they're probably not things that you would want, like your, you know, your spouse or your child or something to do, but, you know, uh, if you do, if someone does these things, maybe they'll be a great writer. And then the other review is by Josh, a uh, writer named novelist named Joshua Cohen. There's a Joshua Cohen who's appeared on Blogging Heads um, a half or like a dozen or so times, but that's a different Joshua Cohen. And in this one, he wrote it as if he is Roth in the afterlife, <laughs> reviewing the book. Uh, so it's very out there, metafictional, like the kind of thing Michiko Kakatani um, used to do. And it also, so it, it kind of seems like. People are not able to approach this thing dead on. They need to do something sort of out there. Of course, Roth would play all these metafictional tricks all the time, and um, and and I guess you know, just of course, reviewing a nine hundred page book is difficult to begin with. But the, some of the complaints seem to be that there was too much stuff about Roth, like arguing about the cover design of the latest book, and not enough about what he was actually doing or thinking or what how the work changed between the different drafts and, and stuff like that. But this is the authorized biography. He had access to everything, but also he probably wasn't going to stick the shiv in, um, you know, explicitly if he, you know, Roth accepted him fully and they had like a relationship and so forth. So in some ways it's like Roth, it seems like Roth criticism can, can finally now like begin in earnest and everyone can really like jump in and start, you know, dissecting the corpse kind of thing. Yeah, um, my appeal, we started this interview this way, is just critical distance is super important. And Roth had a tendency, I think this came out in the Lawrenson review, which I thought was very good. You mentioned two very good reviews, the Josh Cohen and the Lawrenson. Roth did have a tendency to surround himself with friends who would write about him. And it created this sort of bubble around Roth, which I don't think worked to his advantage. Because right, he created a backlash, people like me, for example, right, <laughs> who really wanted to get to what was at the core uh, of the writer. I think the best Roth biographies have to be unauthorized, and they have to they have to really question. Let's let's wrap up on this, right? We were having a discussion earlier about the autobiographical dimensions 
overall its work. All right. One thing I speak about a lot in the book is that every time Roth was asked about this, he was asked about this in the late 60s and early 70s again and again. Why do you write autobiographically? Roth would lose it. He would call his interviewer an imbecile. He would say his interviewer didn't understand how literature worked, right? He'd throw this big fit, right? I can't tell you how many times Roth did that, not just on the autobiographical issue, but on an issue as basic as whether he was a Jewish American writer. Uh, he would deny he was a Jewish American writer. So I'm an American writer. I understand that he saw it as... So in, in closing, what, what I think we must recognize is you never... I always tell my students, sometimes we invite writers to Georgetown to address our class, writers that we've read. Uh, here's a writer that we read. I've got her book right here, uh, Vagabonds by Hao Jingfang, right? uh, a Chinese writer. And we read her story, Folding Beijing. And because of a connection, she came to class to speak to us. And it was mm-hmm. really interesting, right? But the one thing I told my students, I think is a really good place for us to pause, right? The one thing I said is never let the writer get the last word, right? That's the job of the critic, all right? So you have all these professional Roth critics out there. Those are the ones I want to hear about in the next, hear from, excuse me, in the next 10 or 20 years. I want them to start picking this gentleman apart and showing people what's great about Philip Roth and showing people what, you know, might not be so great about Philip Roth. That's the work of the Yeah, yeah. And and so the man is gone. The, the work lives on. I would just say one, one other thing. The thing I – one of my favorite things about Roth is the way he would do dialogue and he would often ha- – he was great at, show- at having people argue with each other. He would often do it in a solid paragraph. He wouldn't do line breaks between the different people talking. And so and you really could see like he ha- did have that sort of like negative capability thing of – he was able to portray both sides of people yelling at each other and arguing, and you understood both of them. And that, you know, that, that sort of being able to see things from other people's perspective, even though we're talking so much about how he wrote from his own perspective, his own identity, like he he was like the mimicking and being able to capture like an opposing perspective, I think is, uh, you know, was one of his greatest strengths. And, you know, understanding how, what other people think about things is certainly uh, something we can all cultivate in our lives. Okay, so we should probably wrap up here. So thank you for coming on. Maybe when the book comes out, we can have you back on and talk a little bit more about Roth. Uh, hopefully people who uh, are watching this, if they've never read Roth, and they somehow stuck through, stuck with this, they'll uh, they'll check him out. I would say start with the Ghostwriter. That would be, that would be if you've never read Roth before, start with the Ghostwriter. I think that's pretty good advice. Um, and so the book comes out in September. The title, once again, Philip Roth, We Don't Know, Sex, Race, and Autobiography. Um, anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? No, this was a lot of fun. It's really a lot of fun to talk about literature, and thank you for having me. Well, thank, again, thank you for taking the time, and uh, thanks to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time.